All right, you're with the Austin Blanco podcast, and this is me, Austin Blanco. Today I am with Steve Throne from Vortran Lasers, and I managed to rope Steve in from his otherwise productive endeavors and distract him for a couple uh, couple minutes to have a small discussion about lasers and laser technology. So Steve, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate you setting this up. It's going to be awesome. We're going to bore the crap out of a bunch of people. It's going to be a blast. And there might be a nugget of tour information along the way. <laughs> that's, the, that's the plan. So tell me about you. Tell me about where did you grow up? So uh, born and raised in California in Cupertino. Um, grew up down there. Was born at Stanford Hospital. Um, my father worked at HP, which is why we were in the Bay Area. So I've been around technology my entire life. Um, in fact, my first trip to the Smithsonian Institution Museum, I saw the schematic for an atomic clock, and my father said, hey, that's wrong. And I said, well, how do you know? And he goes, I was the lead engineer for HP for the <laughs> atomic clock. Um, so technology and, and engineering has been you know, part of everything I've done, especially growing up in the heyday of the Silicon Valley. Um, went to school in Chico. Um, got a great education there, did mechanical engineering, um, very hands-on, <clears throat> had to build stuff, had to be practical, um, and did quite well there. Came back, started working some jobs around. I actually worked at HP for a while. And how I ended up in lasers was I wanted to live in Santa Cruz, so I answered an ad in a newspaper. Wow. And ended up going from engineering to sales and kind of always knew I wanted to do sales because I can actually talk fairly well, communicate, um, and communicate with an understanding of technology is a pretty good skill. So got hired there and been in it ever since. That was 1995. Right on. So did you, were you a full-on nerd in, in high school or did you do sports or what were your, what little, was your balance? Little of everything. Um, I, I actually... I, I hung out with the nerds, you know, took calculus as a senior, all that stuff. But I also, I played soccer. Um, I knew all the popular people and hung out with them, knew all the smokers back when they had smoking sections. So <laughs> I was kind of a chameleon in that I could, I could um, be with anybody and, and hang with anybody. So um, that's a skill I've always had is being comfortable wherever I am because I know who I am. So yeah. that makes it very easy. Right on. So you had one foot kind of in each world. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense for sales, I think, because it's interesting to see there's people that kind of, for whatever reason, they're cut from the pure engineering cloth or the pure sales cloth. But it's not like in, you're not really in sales though. I mean, you're more in technical uh, applications, what I would say. Yeah. And, and long before it became sort of a popular thing, was my first mentor, um, Bob Potenza. He, um, he, he was the same type of person, incredibly technical, you know, had a PhD in physics, um, but was also a very um, communicative person. So he's the one that taught me that, you know, selling is, is actually really easy and really ineffective. It's like used car salespeople do, or car salespeople is, here's the car, how much you want to buy it for? Um, and what he taught me was selling solutions is if someone has a problem that I know I can solve, I figure out the best and most economic way for both parties to do it. And if you're just out selling spec sheets, you're always 
going to the lowest common denominator of everything. So when I've always kind of been selling in the high end of the laser world, so there's always has to be a justification. And if there is no justification, there is no sale, right? Well, yeah. you shouldn't be selling that for a higher premium anyway, because you know, you don't need to kill a mosquito with a hammer. You, you use the right tool for the right application. So, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, okay. So you get out of college, you got your engineering degree, you get into sales. So what brings you into selling lasers? So that was the, the, the most interesting thing was it truly was fate or luck or whatever was, like I said, I wanted to live in Santa Cruz um, and answer an ad in a newspaper. And, and it was a laser company? And it was a laser company. It was Blue okay. Sky Research in Santa Cruz. And um, the irony was I actually didn't get the job. It was down to me and one other person, but you know, I was 20 something <laughs> and the other person for this inside sales position was in their forties. And so the, uh, Bob Potenza who ended up being my boss to give the punchline, um, he called me up and said, yeah, we're going to hire the other person because they have more experience. They were a really small company. Yeah. And he said, you know, but you know, keep my name if you're ever still available or if we ever have a position come up again, you know, I'll, you'll be the first person I call. And I'd been interviewing a lot of people or with a lot of companies and I heard that story multiple times. So you go, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like the first time I actually believed him. I'm like, oh, wow, thanks, man. And literally like a week later, he calls me and says, are you still available? You know, come in tomorrow. We're going to offer you a job. Wow. Um, what happened to the first guy? So the first woman, it's really tragic. Her daughter got kidnapped. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like crazy, oh crazy. Gosh. And she lived on the East Coast. So she all of a sudden called them up, said, I have to leave. I can't take oh this gosh. job and left. Now, is it really, I mean, that's shocking. Yeah. Um, so I actually, in a, in a lot of ways, hope it's some story she made up because she got a better job or right? whatever. Uh, that's but, a big story, though. I mean, yeah. that's not the dog ate my homework. No, yeah. it was it was kind of crazy. And and it, on the phone, uh, the irony was I, you know, I was kind of between things at the time, so I went for like a five or six hour bike ride that day, and I'd literally walked in the door and the phone was ringing. And this is before cell phones and stuff, so. I right quickly ran up and picked it up right as the answering machine was getting it. And I'm like, hello, hello, hello. And he goes, hey, you know, this is Bob Potenza from Blue Sky. Is this Steve? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, hey, you know, are you available to come in today or tomorrow? Wow. And I was like, well, why? And he goes, well, we're going to offer you a job. And the next day I went to their office and they offered me the job and I started working the following day. Wow. So, yeah. All right. So you're selling lasers and you're in your mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, and it was the greatest then? opportunity ever. And the reason being is one of the founders, the guy who founded their technology, which was a micro lens was this, um, very prolific person in the laser world called his name was Jim Snyder. And he had worked at NIST. Um, he'd worked at Lawrence Livermore and was, you know, when I went to my first trade show with him, it's, it, it, it was like, he knew everybody. And he was just this incredibly brilliant, incredibly kind mentor. So when I had questions about, you know, the first time I got asked what an Edelon is, it was like, well, what the hell is it? You know, and 
you look all the things up, you know, it was much harder to look things up online back then. Yeah, the, the Oracle of Goo didn't exist, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I asked him and he explained it very simply. And he was a guy that if you asked, well, why is the sky blue? He would give a very simple answer. And, and he taught me that the people that really know what they're talking about don't talk in techno speak. That makes sense. And and he he had this ability of taking incredibly con- incredibly difficult concepts and boiling them down to very simple things like uh, uh, Blue Sky's uh, uh, micro lens was all based on his technology, and it was a fiber lens that had an aspheric um, front and back surface, and basically made a virtual point source for laser diodes. So it compressed the fast axis and then rediverged it so that you had a round beam. And right on. back then, at the beginning of laser diodes, that was a key to solving a pretty big problem of no one wants elliptical. I mean, there's very few applications where you actually want elliptical. You want it round. Yeah. And so that take, was mat or 90 degree oriented cylinder lenses was the only other way to do that, right? Right. So then cross cylindrical lenses was, was the other way. And they would basically use two lenses that did the same thing. And he figured out a way to make to take a macro optic grind these arbitrary shapes in it and then you could pull it like fiber and it would scale down exactly as you ground it so right he, on he was i mean brilliant on so many levels to figure that out because glass has this wonderful property that as you stretch it out it won't deform it'll actually keep its shape yep so um he took the knowledge of fiber optics and so we had these lenses pulled on standard optical fiber towers and wow yeah it was it was a it was a great learning process because it took a whole lot of optical mechanical and other things to really start understanding what it what we were even building and then to grow out and also back to the whole value you know we were taking what were 40 or 50 dollar red diodes and selling them for 500 dollars yeah and you know, it started that whole conversation of why, I mean, this is just a laser diode. Why is it so much? And it went into all, all the technology and expertise that made this thing better. Yeah. Well, that's the old, uh, there's a bunch of different versions of the story, right? But it's the, you know, the guy goes to the Ford plant, he's called in as a consulting agent to figure out why the, the production line is, is not successful. And then, you know, he spends a day there and, uh, goes to the management and he says, okay, you see that machine right there? They go, yeah. He goes, yeah, put it over here. Right. So they move the machine and, and, uh, the production line works, right. everything flows and he goes, great. Uh, here's my bill, you know, and it says, uh, pointing where the machine should go, you know, or moving the machine is like 10 bucks, you know, and then knowing where to point it, 19,000, you know, and they're like, right. Hey, you know what, why is your bill so much? And it's right. like, because I knew I knew all the accumulated background, right? That's the value, right? Right. Yeah. The experience and the knowledge and the technology, right? Yeah. So that's a, a huge thing in anything. In I think a lot, what I learned there was a lot of people were trying to solve very complex problems with sub um, substandard solutions, and they were spending a lot of time, money, and effort in in propagating the problem down the road into other other things like detection and other other things the system would do without understanding that you're starting with garbage in and what happens when garbage goes in yeah you just amplify it you, you get garbage, garbage out, out yeah. right so yeah. um 
it's it's funny because Jim Jim had this quality of having those simple statements and the best thing was he was like a genius at puns and really bad jokes um, but it just went along with his way of boiling really complex problems down to the to the lowest common de- denominator it fit his personality as a whole yeah, so, that's cool that's a great like kind of uh, industry mentor right to have a chance to work under right absolutely yeah it is weird because you can't I find this hilarious that you know I, I've I can identify several people for myself that I would say are industry mentors and it's interesting because you don't choose them and I don't even know that they choose you necessarily. It just kind of happens, but it's definitely like, it's just a huge, uh, uh, blessing to have people like that, you know, step into your life and, and download this accumulation of knowledge that they've had to learn from scars and bleeding, you know, and then they hand it to you for free and it's, it's really cool. It's that, that people take the time to do that. It, you know. it really is. And it's these people that are so prolifically confident in their in their capability that they don't care who they talk to about it or or what. They're just about um, disseminating the information that they've acqu- they've accumulated. And I had that experience. It's you know the irony is you just brought up something um, f- for the life of me, his name does not come to mind right now. I, I'll think of it. But he was one of my first sales calls at Blue Sky. And basically, because I was employee number 12, I think, um, you know, my training was here are all the spec sheets and here's an office and the phone rings, answer it. Yeah. And one of the first calls was one of the lead developing engineers at Beckton Dickinson. And that's a big one. Yeah. And I'm talking to him and he's like, you know, how long you've been working there? And I'm like, it's like my first fifth day. And he's like, (laughs) wow. Okay. And and he, but it was really interesting because exactly what you said, he spent like a couple hours on the phone with me explaining what it is they did and why they were interested in what we were doing and all this back and forth of, Oh, okay. Well we, you know, we have this. And then he would say, okay, but that, that, you know, what I'm really concerned about is all these other things. Do you have that? No, I don't really have. Why is that important? And I think just like you, from my personal knowledge of you, is there's an interest on both sides. Because I would always, if I didn't understand something, I would say, I don't know about that. Why is that important? So there was a, a give and take of, of honesty in the conversation that, um, you know, they just want to talk to you. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one was John Matthews, who was one of the founders of Newport. Um, wow. And he sold that and started a company called Surefire. Mm-hmm. And this is right, you know, that was a little bit later. So it was probably 97, 98 when weapon sites were becoming a thing. And yep. he wanted to use our lasers for, for weapon sites because we can make a round dot. And without a whole bunch of optics to correct mm-hmm. the beam. And um, we had, again, great long conversations about reliability. And, you know, he was an opt, he, he was another guy that had a very, he, he wasn't like Jim in that he wasn't a PhD, but he was a very practical businessman problem solver. Hmm. Because Surefire was founded on the simple thing of they built um, weapon lights for the M60. Yep. 
And his whole thing was the government was having all these things blow up while they were operating them. And all he did was increase the filament on the xenon lamp and the glass. Just made it thicker, Thick, to, thicker. to handle the yeah. shock. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then the hellfire light was born. Mm-hmm. And then every M60 got this thing on it. And it was it was the classic great engineering of a very simple solution to what a lot of people could have turned into a very complex problem. No, no, no. You need to put vibration isolators on there that weigh 50 pounds. Right. And, and, yeah. You know, yeah. active, active vibration, you know. Yeah, with well, a motor and, and, and a battery. Yeah. Yeah. Measure the sinus waves of the, of the <laughs> vibration and, and compensate with, you know, with shock and, and springs and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And he's like, no, just thicken the, make, make the element yeah, Beef up the, uh, the emitter. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you're working for Blue Sky. And then uh, tell me what happens next. So um, we, we, we ventured into telecom and mm-hmm. we did the whole thing that everyone else does is spent a lot of money for chasing, you know, uh, uh, tunable lasers and um, uh, EDFA amplifiers and all these different things. And we got a lot of money and spent a lot of money and I became a product manager for them and got a lot of experience uh, doing interesting engineering work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, fortunately, the pro- we hired a whole bunch of other engineers, but I am proud to say that the products I worked on, you know, Blue Sky still sells today. Wow, that's cool. So, um, we I specifically was the product manager and had a great engineer working with me, Ken Anderson, um, and uh, uh, some great technicians, um, Rob Sprawl. Sproul and Raj Singh, is that his last name? Um, but they were just great employees and we had a great team and, and the things we worked on, we actually got done. That's cool. Yeah. Um, published some Telcordia testing and, and you know, passed a lot of stuff that was, um, that, like I said, was really robust. In fact, um, IPG uses that fiber coupling for their aiming laser for their fiber lasers. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Still in use. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still one of, I mean, Blue Sky's flagship products is their fiber coupling. And that was the product that, that myself and three others developed. Right so, on. Yeah. Right on. So, okay. So then you're Blue Sky, you're crushing it in the telecom industry. What's next? <laughs> crushing it. So 2002 happened. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember <laughs> and, that. Right. Yeah. And everybody and their brother lost all their money. So um, I got laid off. Um, sort of s- skirted around a bunch of things. Um, I actually built cell towers for some friends that we were, they were starting a company because um, I was a climber and did some other stuff. Um, but hopped back into the, to the um, laser world a couple years later um, with power technology. So okay. Out of Arkansas, I ended up being their West Coast sales guy. Um, and it was a... It, it, it was a very good learning experience. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. No, so. I mean, I have a lot of respect for power technology because Tom Burgess, the guy who started it, um, you know, he, power technology came out of them building replacement power supplies for Heaney lasers in the 70s. Wow. Um, they built their own coil winding fixtures and um, they did a lot of different um um, accessory things before they saw where their market was going and they went into making modules 
um, laser diode modules and I was their um, product manager salesperson within Blue Sky because we sold them diodes and so I sold their modules. It's your so we connection. Had, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I wanted to get back into the technology and into lasers. Excuse me. So I went and um, talked to them and got hired and we did it for a couple of years. Um, in the end, it just, we were on different paths. Yep. Um, it goes back to, you know, they sell a good quality lower end module and um, the applications, because at the time I was really debating of going into the medical world and actually getting an MD or some other type of degree like that. Wow. I'd already taken all my pre-med and was at an age where I could have done it. Um, but a very good mentor of mine that was a doctor said, you know, by that time I'm in my early thirties and he's like, look, you know, you've got eight years of school before you're out and practicing Yeah. and you don't, I mean, and the financial commitment and everything else is, it's a hard thing to start this late. You can do it, but, and he put it in my ear of why don't you figure out another way to help the medical world? Huh? And so I started I was still at power technology. And so I started really pushing back into the biomedical world with Becton Dick BD bioscience and all these other companies and all these other laser applications. Mm -hmm. And so I started educating myself and getting to where I knew their product wasn't of the class that could really penetrate into those applications. Hmm. And so then I started looking for how can I get into that? Um, which led me to moving to another laser company of Pavilion Integration. So how did you get medical training? Was that like a personal interest or did you do that in college or what? No, just personal interest. Um, I've always been, I think it goes back to, um, you know, quite personally was my mom had cancer when I was in high school and dealing with that and dealing with the whole medical world around that, um, you know, I wanted to help people. And so... At the same time, in my personal life, I switched and um, that's when I started taking medical or emergency medical training to do um, ski patrol. Okay. Okay. So to this day, it's been 19 years I've been ski patrolling in Lake Tahoe um, as a volunteer. Wow. Okay. Short season this year though. Yes. Droughts aren't good for skiing yeah yeah or water (laughs) either either way oh there's all kinds of impacts right yeah 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 interesting so okay so you're doing ski patrol you're still doing ski patrol you mentioned Mm -hmm. you're rock climbing so and you're managing to find time to work yeah so this is a full house right right and i'm assuming at some point along the way get married yep okay and then so that was another motivation is i i was i was married we were having our first kids um so i went into pavilion and was the director of sales. And um, it was a startup. There were a lot of issues. There were a lot of, um, you know, the normal growing pains. But I knew the founder and CEO um, quite well because he was with Uniphase back in Mm. the day and had developed the first blue lasers, DPSS blue lasers. And I had sold him pump diodes for that. So... Um, there was a natural um, progression into his company. And um, from there, it it was more the fact of um, 
more of a, just a personality difference in how we wanted to run things. So I ended up going back to Blue Sky Research. Wow. Which... So explain to me for a minute. So I see and I've seen for years this, you know, solid state or DPSS, all these different terms. Mm -hmm. What exactly is a DPSS laser? I mean, I diode pump solid state, right? Right. But what's the difference between that and a solid state? Right. So in that, in, it confused me at first, you know, along the way because there's a lot of interchangeable um, terms used for various lasers, and they, and from an end user standpoint, they may seem all the same because they put out light, mm -hmm. coherent light, um, but in the technology, it's very different. So DPSS, you're absolutely right. It's a diode pumped solid state laser. So typically you're using a IR diode to pump uh, crystals that then they have a second harmonic um, generation of light out of the excitation from the IR that you, so take a 532, which is probably the most prolific today, a 532 being green. So it's like a 1066 IR? No, so you start with an 808 diode okay. and you pump it a 1064 a crystal nadidium yag crystal to get 1064 okay and then you use the second crystal to get the second harmonic which is 532 and that's how you get 532 so it's actually wow. two crystals that are bonded together optically bonded to make 532 light and so you're literally so you've got laser a you're shooting it into crystal B yeah. or crystal A, crystal A, which is which hitting is, crystal B, which is then exciting crystal B, which is which putting is out five thirty two. Now okay. that's how we got green light, other than a gas laser, right? Sure, HECADs can do it. Yeah, right. And so, but the problem is, is that they're highly temperature dependent. The, the gas leaks and yeah. Well, that that I mean, the biggest problem with gas lasers is is size and power, because. One of the biggest benefits is, is they produce some of the best light. They have super long coherence. They have, um, they're very low noise. They're very stable um, from after the years of development. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Version uh, one is never stable of anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, the first one's done because I, I, you know, correct my history, but I think it was the 40s when gas lasers were first really being um, seen. Hmm. And so, um, through the development of the mechanics and optics and everything, by the time, you know, we're into the 80s and 90s, I mean, these things are, are pretty rock solid, you know. And then there's also cost because back then it was two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 for a few milliwatt um, Heaney that puts out, you know, 633. Yeah. Yep. Right. Some of the earliest uh, uh, laser combiners I worked with were gas lasers and... I remember the green heenies and yeah, it was like this humongous thing. And then right. you pay however much five, six grand and you get barely any light. And that was still considered good. And that really time. is what you made uniface was because they made argon ions and other lasers. And so, and they're one of their biggest cu customers was applied biosystems hmm. who was doing cell analysis, biomedical systems and I heard from people that were there that Applied Bio was buying so many that they basically had a truck and they would just call them off and then drive them over to build systems. Wow. I mean, millions of dollars worth of, of, of lasers. So, but, 
you know, the two biggest things for portable systems was size and power. Because you're yeah. talking kilowatts of power to run them. I mean, you could heat rooms with it. With the, oh, I remember one was water cooled. I used yeah, it was yeah. a, a UV pulse laser, and it had like you had to run the water or it would right. break, it would burn yeah. up. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and and so the development back, you know, because it was it was a few years earlier it was the late 80s i believe at bell labs when they made the first laser diode by accident he grew a cavity put light across it and all of a sudden light came or put electricity across it and all of a sudden light came out of this thing and he was like wait and then went down the road of figuring out oh it's this imperfection that grew this cavity that actually made light wow so from bell labs then they started you know toshiba and some of the japanese companies were for the first commercial production um, and then there was always this kind of holy grail of, oh, laser diodes are going to take over everything mm-hmm. and gas lasers are going to go away and all. Well, the reality is they're still making gas lasers. Sure. And, you know, the question being why, well, you can't do a lot of the things you can do with a gas laser the, it, with, with a laser diode. You can't mm-hmm. get the coherence. You can't get the stable wavelength. You can't get, you can make it close but they're still better. So interesting. There's all these slices of it's it's not like a light bulb and even light bulbs, right? You can get different. There's still a filament light bulb right. for certain <laughs> things, exactly. right? Like LEDs haven't taken over everything. It's kind of crazy. Well, yeah, cuz you get all the color problems like who's who's bought a LED light bulb and they're like, "Man, that color looks like crap." Yep. And you buy a filament light bulb and it's always this nice warm yellow. Mm-hmm. And why? Cuz it's broad spectrum and I still use filament light bulbs when I'm doing um, spectral stuff in the um, close to the NIR range because LEDs do not put out and you know the NIR bandwidth unless you buy an LED dedicated to do that in which case it's still kind of arbitrary and it's got bumps right yeah you you get these overlapping spectral bands that that it doesn't it's not a clean nice gain band over the whole wavelength spectrum and so you know, and that's why these different technologies exist is especially with lasers is a, a lot of times I've found there's unintended consequences, both good and bad for the way a specific laser behaves. Hmm. So I've seen where someone specced, you know, a blue sky module and it has all these properties and everything else. And they're like, okay, I want to, I want to do something different whatever it is save cost or different different manufacturer whatever and they go and they spec something that on the spec sheet looks exactly the same and they plug it in and it doesn't work and there's all kinds of reasons why that could be it could be polarization stability it could be you know wavelength stability optical noise all these things that oh when i shined it on the wall it still looked the same why yeah. doesn't you know why doesn't it pick up my impurity test in semiconductor manufacturing oh well actually it shifted a half half a nanometer it's mode hopping so that impurity which is this size and it's supposed to reflect well by mode hopping it's changing the actual diffraction limit size so it's changing the way the diffracted pattern looks so you're not seeing that impurity is that because of a timing discriminator error or is that like some sort of just impurity in the crystal or why why does that happen it happens for a whole again it could be cascades it could be drivers drivers. it could i mean i i troubleshooted this one that um 
it turned out at this at a specific time they were pumping down the chamber while they were doing this test and it was the cycling of the motor coupling back into the laser Wow. Okay. So it's effectively line noise. And it was yeah. isolated and everything else, but it wasn't isolated for that frequency band. <laughs> Interesting. Right? Okay. And so you can, you know, especially with laser diodes, they're gigahertz response devices, even though you, it's really hard to drive them that way. But so they'll see all this noise that the rest of the system doesn't care about because most detectors aren't that responsive. Yeah. I don't even think my scopes, they don't even touch gigahertz speeds. So. Yeah. Right, so you'll get these blips, and they're super fast, but that can change how, when you're timing your, your that can change the integrated um, response on the detector for whatever you're measuring. Wow, okay. And so it, it become, once you integrate lasers into whatever you're doing, there's a lot of nuances to how you implement it correctly without having these kind of ghost-in-the-machine type of, of issues. Right on. So, okay. So then explain to me, um, what exactly makes a laser? Cause like when I first came into this industry, I looked at, you know, these, these gigantor gas lasers or whatnot, right. Mm -hmm. Or the, the super cool, you know, diode laser was like, you know, that was the hot thing at the time. And, and meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm going on Amazon and I've got this $20, uh, you know, at the time they would sell you whatever power level they wanted, you know, a uh, uh, 100 milliwatt, you know, 405. You can get a one and, watt 440 for yeah. know, $500, $300 or Yeah, whatever, whatever right. it was, right? It's like 12 bucks or who knows. And I'm going, well, why, why don't I just, you know, bolt a couple of these onto a platform and use those to make a launch? So... Take the difference between a particle counter and a flow cytometer. Okay. Because a particle counter is a very similar thing. You have a chamber that you're flowing particles through, you're shining a light in, a laser in, um, and you're getting this diffraction pattern off a particle, and you're hitting detectors, and from that you can size the particle, right? right? And when you get down to uh, uh, especially hematology systems, now you're flowing stuff through. The irony is this blood's actually kind of dirty. There's a whole, there's white blood cells, there's platelets, there's a whole bunch of other things in there, right? And so what can happen when you're doing particles, you can almost have the same size, but a lot of times the sample is a lot more pure. Okay. So you have a lot less noise on the detection side that you have to filter out mm -hmm. because you're getting fairly consistent particle size. Um, and then the other thing is, is that a lot of times, you know, there's like with different um, materials, you get different absorption. So some might be, some light might be absorbed, yeah. some might not, some yeah. might reflect and some might not. Right. And then the, the biggest thing is flow cytometry. Well, so if I'm counting particles and I'm looking for dust particles or whatever, and I get the count off by uh, a few tenths or whatever, you know, oh, okay, well, it's, it, you know, I may not call it hazardous air, but it's unhealthy air or something like that, right? Okay. You get a few counts off on a he on a hematology test for hepatitis. Yeah. It could mean the difference of being diagnosed or not. Okay. Okay. So there's certain aspects where these performance characteristics are going to become extremely important. Correct. And precision becomes incredibly important because when you look at the data from all these things, they're they're not so you know. Only this, only this, this particle has come through, or only this. It's kind of a spread of data, and so you have to design the systems so that that spread gets as small as possible, and then through the various 
um, algorithms of testing, you can say, okay, this says that those blood cells are this. Yeah. So, okay. So, so I want to take my, my pen laser, right? right? And I want to shoot it into a fiber and I want it to be a single mode fiber. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to shoot that in the back of my microscope. Mm-hmm. Why can't I do that? Well, <laughs> um, there's a lot of reasons. You know, one of the biggest things, especially when you're going into fiber is pointing because, um, anytime you turn something on, there's heat to deal with, right? Okay. So if you go from cold to hot, you're going through a thermal gradient. Now, if I just press this thing into a tube, which is what a pen lighter is, right? Or a pen light, um, I've taken a circular thing and pressed it into a circular hole. In mechanics, you will never have complete contact. So you have multiple points that you're putting on that, which... Be- based on stress because you're pressing it in to hold it now you have uneven stress around the entire thing now okay. what happens is is when that material heats you may or may not have dissimilar materials because the the um, um, bottom of the of of the header of the diode may be different than the aluminum or whatever else so now yeah. you have dissimilar materials expanding okay. so you create more stress and what that does is you're starting typically with about a one by three micron emitter for a laser diode. So mm-hmm. if we're talking a red pointer, um, now you're taking that little emitter and, and moving it around in space in almost six, six dimensions because you can both tilt and twist and you can displace it too, but depending on the so stress. Translation and how... angle on three different right. axes or two different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then, okay. So then, basically, you're saying it's not going to hit the fiber right. reliably. So if you think about a fire, a, a rifle. Yeah. You know, going there's there's several things that 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 dictate where that thing is going. How you take away a lot of them in a rifle is you propagate the bullet down this long shaft. So now it's going in that direction, and now it's just how I point the barrel. When you're taking a laser, you have a point source, and this thing's moving around. So not only do you have the bore sighting, which is the translation of the beam, you also have the angle, divergence okay. angle. And polarization, right? And polarization can change too because you can get optical stress, which yeah. can change the polarization of the actual cavity and can t- any optics in there. Because as you stress them, which if you've ever like put pressure on a, on, um, a window that's polarized, you can actually see it yeah, slightly change, change it. right? Yep, yep. Because you're changing the stress in it and stress polarization is how they make those coatings and things, yep. right? Okay, that makes sense. So, okay, so then now tell me about, like right now there's a number of products that are using, um, well, I guess they're, they're not considered lasers, but they're still using like diodes. Um, so that's another uh, uh, misconception is light emitting diodes and laser diodes are are in the eyes of e- of, of U.S. commerce the same thing. Okay. But LEDs and laser diodes are very different. So in the in the optics world, light emitting diodes are LEDs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In the commerce world, I've had many discussions where I'm like, no, these are laser diodes. They're very different. No, but they still emit light and they're diodes. Okay. So for the products where you see these very high power levels um, and they're they're coupling to say like a multi-mode fiber. Mm -hmm. So they can be either. Okay. So laser diodes, 
there, there's really two kind of major classifications are single mode and multi-mode. And single mode um, is, is the spatial mode of the device. So you, can, you basically, without getting into too much of the physics of it, it's single mode, single spatial mode lasers are TEM00, right? And then there's multi-mode lasers, which are typically the higher powered ones. And what they, what they really are is a larger cavity with emitting light. And so you can have multiple spatial modes. Okay, so it's basically an uh, attendu problem then. Correct. You can't stuff that multimodal laser down into the same power density of a single mode laser because it's effectively just a fat version of a single mode laser with multiple output modes. Right. Okay. So, and and it comes down to the to the fact that it, it's energy density. So, on a single mode laser, you have a one by three micron that's emitting that's that's creating that power, and this goes into basic imaging and optics understanding is a single mode laser uh, fiber is set up to propagate that mode. And so for a red laser, say, um, the mode field can be, you know, depending on the wavelength is about five microns, right? Well, okay. I have a one by three emitter, so I can get all of that power into it. Now for a one watt 630 laser, you usually have like a hundred or 200 micron emitter, one by 200 microns. Okay. So the reality is in the end, I'm still only going to have that same energy density if I try to get it into a single mode fiber. So I'm going to strip all those other hundreds of milliwatts away to try and propagate it into the single mode fiber. Among the other thing is all the modes are going to get stripped off, which are going to cause you to lose even more so you'll actually a lot of times get less than if you started with say a hundred milliwatt single mode laser wow so if i need a single mode uh fiber input for whatever backside optical work i'm doing on my instrument then it's highly desirable to use a single mode laser to pump the light into that fiber so i guess the way i'm imagining it in my head which is oftentimes very wrong so bear with the analogy, but you're, I kind of what you're saying is, if you start off with the single mode laser, um, I'm imagining that as like a um, like a bucket that has a straw uh, poked into the bottom of it. So the like the water's coming out of the straw, and I'm gonna pour that into a garden hose. So my fiber is my garden hose, and the water's the, coming out this straw. Well, I can fit all that water into the garden hose, right? But then if I just pour the bucket out. I'm, yeah. I'm going to just grossly overfill the garden hose, right? right? And so really it's it's more desirable to have the straw situation. Otherwise, I'm just going to have a ton of energy and probably in the end less coming out the, out the fiber. It's possible I'll have less right. coming out the fiber. Okay. Right. That makes sense. That and makes this, sense. And this comes down to mode quality and spatial quality and everything else because like a lot of what's going on in industrial lasers is all the fiber lasers and everything else. And they have very good mode quality, but in reality they really don't care because all they're trying to do is get a lot of energy in a very small spot. And when you're getting down to a few hundred microns, when you're cutting metal, that's that, you know, that is insanely small compared to even traditional ways of cutting metal. Right? Yeah, because a saw totally. is how thick, whatever the timer is. Thick, yeah, yeah, right? it's going to be a thirty. So second you cutting with with a hundred, a few hundred microns, 
Um, it doesn't matter if if there's 20 or 30 percent um, power variation across that spot because the entire spot is what's cutting through the metal. Right? And you just need it to get you just need it to thermally convert. Right? You just it's need still to kill absorbing. lots of power. Yeah, it, there. It, yeah, right. You don't yeah. want it in you know you don't want 200 um, uh, a kilowatt of power in 200 microns with a half a kilowatt, a half a millimeter or several millimeters away. You all sure. want it in that spot, which is why fiber lasers, multi-mode fibers or large core diameter fibers, they don't care. They're just trying to propagate that energy. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. But from your world of micro microscopy and imaging, if, if I take that same idea and I want to illuminate a cell evenly, very evenly, yeah. within a few percent over the entire aperture, and I take a multi-mode laser and put it in there, you're gonna see 10, 20, 30% variation. So when you detect that, you're gonna get widely different things each time you pulse it and get and get that image, because it'll actually change too. Interesting, so that's, I've noticed that there's seems to be these different worlds, right? So there's LED illumination, um, which most people these days are either using a three millimeter core uh, liquid light guide, mm -hmm. which is effectively like, just gel, trying yeah. to trying to homogenize the light, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got a single mode fiber coupler, mm -hmm. which it sounds like you're kind of getting the the purest. Well, it, it's approximating a point source optically, right? So you're getting a um, typically a minimum resolvable distance spot of whatever your collimating optic is that then is distributed into your to your imaging system, or what seems to be around now right is becoming more and more uh, prolific is this super powerful multi-mode system with a multi-mode fiber delivery system and then a bunch of corrective optics to flatten the image field mm -hmm. okay so if i'm like where where would i really want to have the like why is the correction bad i guess is my question it's not bad. I mean, it just depends on what you can withstand in your imaging plane, right? Okay. Um, and what what we found is, um, and going to, I mean, there, there are definitely applications because you just absolutely need the energy density in that wide field. So you're going to have to use a high-powered laser, which typically is putting you into these multi-mode devices. Um, but what we found on the other end of the spectrum is a lot of people have been overspecking power required, yeah, because of the the losses and I wouldn't call it low quality, but the the designs to deliver the laser light into a microscope or other things, the losses as they go down the chain are dramatic and compounding. Yeah, it's it's horrible. Right. Yeah. So. What we've seen with us developing our own combiner is that you know we can get two to three, four times more light out of a fiber than what most people start with, right? So, wow. Okay. Um, you know, when we start with a fifty milliwatt laser, you're getting you know thirty-five to forty milliwatts out of the fiber after combining with everything. Whereas some very large companies, when they started with a 50 milliwatt laser, no. you're getting like 10. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a huge difference. Right. And so yeah. now when they're trying to do higher, more demanding, um, you know, either higher speed or a larger area or whatever, where they require more 
um, energy at, at their sample, um, they're saying, okay, well, that 50 only gave us 10, so now I need 200. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so it's because of the fact that you've got this lossy system and you're, spe you're specifying the power on the source end and not on the fiber output end. And so then after the loss, you end up kind of... Right. Yeah, you end up not getting even what you could get if you just had a higher quality output source properly coupled into right. uh, into a fiber. That makes sense. Okay, so tell me a little bit about... Oh, well, let's let's go back really quick to... You're, you're back home at Blue Sky. Right. Right? So you've done the full circle. You're back at Blue Sky. And you're working there. And so what happens next? Um, so the next thing was I ran into Chris at at um, Photonics West and he had left Coherent and I hadn't personally known him um, but I had sold to that group and okay. so Chris was the developer of the Cube Laser at Coherent which literally started that entire market of rectangularly packaged laser diode modules. Wow. So, okay. I mean, which I've seen these things all over the place, right? right? I mean, anybody in our industry knows about the coherent cube laser. And he did it. I mean, he wow. And and so, after talking to him, that they had started up and everything else, um, and knowing his pedigree and the engineering capabilities they had, um, for me, I saw it as a huge opportunity to um, really be involved with a a a small company that could really solve a lot of these big problems that I'd seen across the industry. Um, there's a lot of people out there that make similar boxes mm -hmm. and um, they just don't perform as well. <clears throat> and there were, okay. and there were problems with the, the original cube um, that, that would manifest themselves in these in these, in these applications, but it was the best solution there was. Okay. So um, after talking to them, it was really more of a, I see a huge opportunity here and I really want to be a part of that. Wow. Um, so at the time I joined the company as, as the director of sales again. And, um, now what kind of company is this? This, so this was Vortran laser. Okay. So Chris is working at Vortran laser at the time. So you come across Vortran laser and so you see this guy, you're like, okay, this dude's a badass. I like the way he thinks. I like what he does. And you see the potential for being able to kind of really meet needs. Right. Okay, so you jump and you go to Vortran. Yes. All right, cool. All right. And, and really it was, you know, I, I, I did my best of trying to get um, other companies into these applications and they just couldn't, they, they couldn't meet the specifications. They couldn't build product that would actually perform the way they needed to. And what what really drove me and and he'll say it and I say it too is and it kind of sucks but coherent makes good products mm -hmm. you know they're not they're not a crappy company mm -hmm. and so I would lose a lot of accounts to them because when they sold products they performed and so I would I was sort of in my career tired of losing to that because I wanted to be selling something that could stand toe to toe to coherent and in reality, what Chris did when he designed this new laser, the Stratus laser, was he improved a lot of things. And the hardest part about it is it, you're, you're now, it's, it's, it's grains of sand or hair, hair thickness changes, yeah. um, but it really does affect how they perform and what they do. Um, so once I got here and so we started talking, 
he told me he had sent coherent management a list of all these things that he wanted to fix in the cube. And like most big companies, they said, you know, no, we're just going to keep plugging along with it because it'll cost too much. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's NRE, right? Yep. It's engineering time. And so he spent a lot of his time kind of making up for the pitfalls that, you know, it it literally was the first engineering prototype. It wasn't the first, but it's, it wasn't a, it wasn't as mature a product as it could have been. And so what he did when he came here was he implemented all those things. Interesting. Okay. And so, but now, so, okay. So there's a change here because you come to coherent and you're the director of Vortran. So uh, sorry, yeah, for, excuse me. So you know, I'm thinking about the. But you come to Vortran and you are the director of at that point sales. Okay, but today you're the head. You're the head guy, right? You're the head honcho. Yeah. So two years ago, Chris and I bought the assets, and now we're the owners along with our partner in the UK. Wow. Okay. Um, so and what what is your title? Um. Technically, I'm CFO okay. and secretary, I guess, of the board. Yeah. Um, I'm chief janitor. Right. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, but the most interesting thing is, is, you know, I've been working with Chris for 10 years now. And in those 10 years, there were some incredibly stressful and um, difficult times, mm-hmm. um, both with the management of the pre- previous company and just dealing with, you know, small company woes. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, and the reason I had complete faith of jumping into this with him is that we've never really disagreed on anything. Wow. Okay. So you saw things eye to eye. You saw you saw the world the same, and you saw the challenges the same. And we and both you chewed some dirt. Right. right. And yeah. and we had differences of opinion in in some things, but they were never. Um, you know, they were shades of gray. They were never black and white. Oh, I want to do this and I want to do this. It was more like, hey, don't you think we should go this way? And he'd say, no, we should do this. And in reality, you know, because I came from small companies and always having to kind of fight for your every meal, mm-hmm. um, I have a different perspective because he was at Coherent. That was his only job. And so it's a very different approach when you're working for the market leader in a very large company is you have time, you have resources and financing so you can kind of take your time. So the thing I pulled him to is, you know, in a small company, you have to take some risks. You know, we can't spend six months testing every new product forever. Um, we have to rely on the fact that you know what you're doing, the engineering's right, and we got to get it out there. Well, and you get into the people, the hands of the people that are okay with it blowing up because right. they want to do, typically they're doing something that's bleeding edge as well. Right. And so then you say, hey, this is what it is. Now go test it and see what happens, right? And then, but well, that that's it, a philosophical understanding, right? That's a, a what did Clayton Christensen uh, described as resource process and value networks. Right. Right. So your value there is speed and agility over maybe, um, we'll call it refinement. Correct. And so you're saying, hey, like in in that dynamic nature of your kind of the value network that you're bringing to the table and Chris's value network, it's in a way I can see that being both super annoying for both of you and also good. Right. Because he's going to pull you. balances, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like if it's like anything else, if you were exactly the same, you'd run in the wrong direction, right? Right. And so he's going to pull you towards that reliability, consistency world. And you're going to pull towards that evolutionary pressure world. 
which is good, right? Because you right. kind of get both if you can hold them in tension. Right. right? Yeah. No, and that's very true. And in fact, um, you you nailed something that's really important because what what we do is is literally every customer of ours is a partner, and so the one thing I've learned because I've been even told by managers to lie about <laughs> problems. Yeah. Oh, isn't that fun? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And my integrity would never let me do it. And that was one thing Bob Potenza taught me is don't ever do that because you you will get caught. And by the way, you don't want to live with that stain on your on on your soul is yep. is be honest. It doesn't mean that Every little thing you have to tell, you know, you have to open every little secret, like talking about your marriage. Oh, I fought with the wife last night. Why tell anybody that, right? Yeah. yeah. But when there are problems, you fess up to them and you fix them. And in fact, um, you know, two things. <laughs> One I learned very early on in my career was um, we had screwed up a whole bunch of, of lasers going to a very large customer. And a new manager basically said, well, we're not going to tell them. And ever, mm. me, myself, and the manager above him said, yeah, that ain't happening. So we fessed up, and fortunately, it, 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 was, it still ended up being that company's longest and most profitable customers many years after that. Well, you saved them so much pressure, I mean, or, or time and waste, right? Because if they had had to discover this, whatever this problem is on their own... Oh, but the irony right. is, is as we were telling them, they were discovering it. Yeah. So you were almost running out of time. Right. Yeah. So if yeah, we yeah, wouldn't yeah. have fessed up when they would have come did, at you hard, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. it shut their multi-million dollar production line oh, down. Yeah. Okay. You know, and at the time we were a couple million. So, you know, we're the little guy supplying a very big company. And, and you're jamming up the works, right? Yeah. They're going to hate you. So, yeah, you come to them quick and say, right. hey, we found this out. Let's fix it. Right. That's way better than what it could have been. Right. Because if they had if they had discovered that and had to pick up that phone and call you, that relationship would have turned bad. Yep. Yep. And and I've learned that for a long time is I've sold lots of vaporware and engineering prototypes and put them out as production, and that doesn't go well ever. Yep. You know, because and. And it was under the guise of, no, because we had published specs and all these things, and it was under the guise that these were production things. And so, you know, what I've, I've learned with Chris is, is you just don't do, I mean, you don't do that ever. Yeah. And so you're, you're sending out mature products, and if you're not sending out mature products, you're partnering with the customer to tell them that yeah. and develop a plan so that things go right and if there are issues there's reasonable stories of why there are sure right. i mean there's always there is no such thing as a perfect product correct right so i mean it's just really a question of what you find out that you want to roll into the next rev and how you communicate that right well so. and, that, and that that leads to why actually this this uh, partner of ours in the investment was one of our first resellers and you know one of the first lasers we sold them um, the control blocks blew up nah. and the fuse the fuse fried and 110 220 so it, it was it was spec for that and everything but Jerry who's an uh, Jerry Williams our our principal electrical engineer who is brilliant he spec the fuse right on the edge there are so many times that that's happened right and especially I, new products and yeah 
and we hadn't because I, I actually did that in a product <laughs> it was like blowing up and it, uh, I remember I, I put it into a, uh, a aviation application actually and you know they go hey Ouch. this thing's not working and it was that the when you turn on things in that very noisy environment, right? The power environment in an airplane is dirty, yeah, it's, right? It's all over the place, right. and so yeah, not not happening with the clean the clean cleanliness of the signal, and so it was popping fuses. And yeah, and this this was in a lab in Cambridge, and Cambridge being one of the you know most in the top prestigious schools in the in the world, you know they have really crappy power, and it browned out and fried the free fuse, and so. Um, you know, Lewis Chawner, the, the salesperson who I had known for, God, probably 20 years by that point, you know, he calls me up and he's like, what the heck? You know, our first laser and it's dying and what, you know, and I'm like, oh my God. So we did all the investigation and Jerry goes, ah, oh, shoot, I should yeah. have spec this higher. And so that day I went to Fry's back when they were still around yep. <laughs> and bought fuses and, and I told him sent him the specs and a letter explaining everything and then that day we shipped fedex a letter letters and fuses to him and so i said hey if you have any other issues here's how you fix it in the field um you know we'll we'll because if anything is wrong with that control box we should look at it because it fried um and i sent him a new control box too and um lewis just a few years ago in front of a customer said yeah you know i mean the one thing and I think that's truly something that sets us apart is we stand behind everything. And if it's not working, we're going to make it right. Yeah. And, you know, when things go wrong, that is the one thing we will do is react quickly and, and fix it. And I think that's the hardest part about modern day warranty and reliability claims is that so many companies say that. It's been my personal experience working with your products kind of as a, um, you know, second I guess, how would I put, like, I mean, I've, I've worked with you on the trigger scopes, right? Like I've supplied mm -hmm. trigger scopes to you that end up going to a customer. Um, but more often than not, you're kind of like a, a, alongside me providing different widgets to a customer. Right. And so I've seen where, um, Hey, we can't control this thing. Right. And then, okay. Oh, well, we'll, we'll set the impedance for this laser module, uh, to this value and then it'll work. And so you're able to jump on and, and help customers and get them going, right? So many companies say that, but actually doing it is the key part, right? right. And what's so funny is that it, as a customer, you never know because everybody's going to tell you, I got great support. Great support. Yeah, right. sure. Me too. Right. But I think it, it's always different at a small company level because either the small company is going to survive and they have good support or the company's lying about their good support and inevitably doomed to failure. Right. And and so in a way, it's like looking for those small companies that you know as a customer that, hey, they want to treat me right. And this is a very basic kind of economic survival principle. If I'm working with a very large company and like, I, I don't remember what it was I was dealing with the other day. I, I'm trying to remember, but it kind of dawned on me that like I can complain and it is completely irrelevant because they don't care about me, right? I'm right. just this peon. Right. I think it was a bank. You know, it was like right. a bank that screwed me over somehow. And and I just thought like, man, I could like throw a fit or whatever and try to complain. But I'm one of, you know, several million customers. They, don't, they give zero craps about me, right? And on the other hand, 
if I'm working with, you know, the mom and pop bank down the road, they do care, right? Mm-hmm. I might constitute 5% of their, of their holdings or something, depending on um, the size of the bank or whatever, right? And so in your case, like you kind of have to care about every customer. And as a result, you're economically encouraged to treat everyone the best you possibly can. So every sale is important, right? Because mm-hmm. the volume just, it's just different. And in a way, that's why I think, especially for the research community, working with smaller manufacturers, it should always be preferred, right? right. Because it, these small build systems are somewhat bespoke um, and almost always unique in some way. Mm-hmm. And so as a customer, you have to understand that you're partnering with g- different groups to make this widget, right? This, this compiled uh, uh, structure Frankenstein it's, almost. Yeah. Well, and it's funny how often people call these a Frankenscope, yeah. right? And it's and it's open source software, and then maybe a little uh, driver hack here and there, or whatnot. And then you know you got widget A from company A and 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 B, C, and D. And then before you know it, you know you've got this thing that will do some novel form of imaging. But all of the different suppliers along the way, or many of those suppliers, might be relatively uh, slow to me or small to medium sized companies. And so you're really partnering with these companies. I mean, it's interesting how when a researcher will will post or comment on, hey, this is the stuff I used, how that can propel uh, other researchers to then use that equipment because they know it works, mm-hmm. right? And so just how important that is for a small business and seeing that partnership as being a mutual exchange, I think, mm-hmm. is, is really important. And we've seen that directly, like with Peter Petroni's open spin stuff and yeah. um, um, Rusty Nikovich's um, Nikolays and mm-hmm. you know here's how I did it and here's all the things and here's where you, and I don't know how many times I've gotten calls or emails like hey I'm building this thing what is it I need and I'm like oh you need this base plate you need these these lasers and and this and and then they come back oh you knew so much how what dichroic do I use I, <laughs> you know and and it, it, it actually fits me pretty well because that that I've never lost that thirst for knowledge sure so and and on top of it I want to help people so I've learned you know a lot of the nuances of setting up a light sheet microscopy system or installing our laser with a Nikon rig or doing all these things because previous people usually find everyone has the same problems yep and so it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, the best solutions for that because there are m- many ways to to do the same things, but what's going to work best and be the most efficient because the end users, the last thing they want to be doing is messing with lasers or messing with cameras or messing with, they want to be doing research and experiments. And, sure. you know, they have... I have a lot of sympathy. I can't really have empathy, I guess, because I haven't built microscopes. Sure. But um, sympathy for these for these researchers because they're stuck in a world that they don't necessarily want to play in, but they have to. Yep. And they're sort of the same people. Is a lot of them want the knowledge just because they 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 have a quest or or a thirst for this knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. A craving for it is to really understand how these things are working, right? Um, but a lot of them don't, and they just want to be able to plug the stuff in and have it work. And as you've seen, especially the big companies, it's like, well, I don't know why it's working. 
And even the technicians that are supposedly experts on these things don't know why it's working, and it's their stuff. Well, the turnover rate's really high right. at the larger corporations, right? So we all we all have have our problems, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is is that when you're buying, you know, a three, four, five hundred thousand dollar microscope rig, someone should probably know how that thing turns on. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, it's it's interesting. I think the large corporate. Uh, turnkey systems obviously have a place i think um where people have the the financial means to just throw the problem back on the company and say look like this thing just needs to work right um you know that that of course there's a market for that right but i think what for me is interesting is how often um you know you have this sales organization or or product supply organization that's set up to primarily drive sales. Mm-hmm. So service becomes the second the second tier thing, right? And then what does every large, especially public held corporation have to answer to? Shareholders. The shareholders, yeah. right? We could and care less about it. They a give, researcher's problem. Right, they don't give a shit, right? right. I mean like, and that's I not- I just the, want revenue. Yes, right. I want revenue. And, and it's interesting because revenue today might mean pissing off all my customers and ruining the company for tomorrow. But I don't care because I want revenue today, and it isn't a, a really tough, um, a tough act to participate. There's too many competing, I think, interests in that. Mm-hmm. Like, because you have the customer is a stakeholder, right? There's a really good book by a guy, uh, Gene Getz, called um, uh, "Joy at Work," and one of the things he talks about is who are the true stakeholders in a company, mm-hmm. right? And so the customers are a stakeholder because if you supply a product or service and then you blow up, right? Well, then the customer and their investment in that product or service is kind of proxy blown up, right? right? So your survival is dependent upon by your customer today, tomorrow, five years from now, right? Okay, so they're a stakeholder. The employees are stakeholders. Mm -hmm. The management and owners are stakeholders. The families of all said people are stakeholders. But are the shareholders really stakeholders? Like, yes, but then again, like, not to the same level. It's interesting, right? Because we give, you know, like... Well, I I think they are, but I think the point you're getting at is they're so far removed from the nuances of a daily operation that they they care the least about what's really driving everything. They just want to see the right numbers. Fair enough. The other problem is is that the employees, families, management, and customers have a five-year stakehold. Right. How long is the stakehold of a publicly traded stockholder? Right. Or even, even private investment. Yeah. Especially when you start talking, because I've been involved with venture capital and things like that, and it's almost worse in a lot of, a lot of ways because they, they kind of don't care where you are or what you're doing. All they want is the end goal. Sure. It's and the, the exit it, event, right? Right. And, it, and not that, I mean... You shouldn't be in a company if you're not trying to make it profitable and grow and all those other things because if you don't if you if you stagnate in those things and there's many companies in the laser world that have done that um, zombie companies right you, yeah. you end up building the same things forever and you have no innovation no improvements no no drive to for the next applications in the next markets right mm-hmm. and and you're really speaking to why. Um, you know, we when we purchase the company, the assets, um, 
we really didn't want an investor, but we didn't have the ca- the capital or personally to 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 do to execute the deal the way we wanted to. Um, so we had to have another investor, and it's specifically why we chose them, and and they were really willing to do it because a lot of our philosophies about overall business align completely. Is we're not just here to sell lasers. We're here actually to solve problems for customers and and to give people worthwhile meaning in their employment and what they do, and not just you know. Ch- we care about our employees. We want them to stay. We don't, we don't see them as a, just another asset that if they're not performing to the perfect level that we just ax them and find somebody else, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, it's an investment in everybody. Right. And so, um, that philosophy I think is what drives a lot of what we do. And in fact, Chris is the very first engineer that I've ever worked with that I would ever allow to sit in front of one of my customers alone. Uh, well, you know what happens normally is engineers start describing all the problems of the product. <laughs> you know, it's... I have a very famous story from oh. a, one of the, one of my first companies, and we went, and this is back in the day when magneto optical drives were happening. Oh come um, on, man! I, I like did inspection systems for ReadWrite. Remember them? I do. Yeah. Actually, we were working with them. Oh my gosh, down <laughs> in San Jose. Yep, or they were, they were Fremont, kind of on the edge, right? That was like Page. Was yeah. it Page? What was that road? That road? It doesn't matter. But yeah, they yeah. Uh, next uh, Auto Mall, one after Auto yeah. Mall. Yep, one of my managers at Blue Sky was from Readwrite. Oh my gosh! Chac, yeah, did you know Chuck Leon? I don't. Uh, it doesn't sound familiar. Because he he developed one of that optical heads. But anyway, there was this. I, I won't say the name of. I should. I probably should. What was the name of that company? I'll think of it at some point. But we all went there. Big meeting. They're like in the process of being purchased by Seagate. Mm-hmm. So this is real stuff, mm-hmm. and the PhD guy that they had hired for the company went with this meeting, and they described what they're doing. And the first thing he says, "Well, why would you want to do that?" <laughs> and we went from from literally several hundred thousand dollars of revenue and the possibility of, to to zero after that meeting. Oh my gosh! They 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 stopped working with us. Oh my gosh! And I, I had multiple times where, and these were senior people in companies where people were describing what they're doing and the problems they're having and the job of the engineer is to solve that. And they would go, well, why are you doing that? I mean, that's never going to work. Yeah. Yeah. You're denigrating the customer. I, I, I mean, that was another one. Yeah. A VP of engineering said that in front of the customer. He goes, well, we've shipped a thousand products, so it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to figure out how to improve it. Oh, oh well. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. That's a that's a personality. Um, I, I would call that like a almost like a personality profile aspect, right? Where right. like the the same kind of person you actually want that person to be in the engineering world, right? Because that why would you do that type of mindset? Will find problems that a person maybe with my tendency where I'll just kind of like I would think that maybe. But probably wouldn't say it. Right. The problem is, is that I might think that as I'm building something. And it'll change the way you perceive. Right. And so you kind of want that just completely uh, binary, you know, yes or no, works or doesn't kind of mindset for exactly that job, which is why it's interesting because there is a place for everyone, right? Right. But that also means don't take that kind of engineer and stick them in front. I've had engineers that would tell me, 
uh, well, not tell me, but tell customers. I remember I was at a, a large microscope camera um, company. So it was a camera company that making low light monochrome cameras, right? And an engineer would say to a customer directly like, well, that's never gonna work. You know, that kind of a thing. Or like, you know, well, you're not using it the way it's meant to be yeah. used. And you're like, you know, the guy, the guy wants to reach you the phone and strangle the dude, right. you know? It's like, it's crazy. And it's just because there's just no, you know, that kind of, um, I wouldn't call it like social awareness and maybe there's a different term. It's almost empathy to the problems they're trying to, yeah, trying like to big, solve. big, pen, big picture empathy, you know, yeah. it's just, it just, that's not, that particular trait is not expressed. And right. so you, you know, well, it's almost too logical, right? It's like yeah. talking to Spock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't understand why you're getting upset with this. Well, my wife's dying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But she has, you know, stage four cancer. She's yeah, going this to is die. the obvious yeah. outcome. Everyone dies. Right. It's like, shut up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Um, and that's the, you know, I, I knew it from almost day one with Chris is his capability. I mean, that's, that's sort of the philosophy we have is everything we do here is because of customers, because mm -hmm. guess what? If we're, we're not selling lasers to customers, we don't have a business. Sure. And, and it's not a capitalistic greed thing. It's more the fact of that has to be the focus. Otherwise, you end up doing what a lot of companies I've seen do is developing products. And then you hand it to your customer that you're developing for. And they're like, yeah, well, this doesn't do what I asked you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I even heard it from one of Coherence's highest level sales guys is, I mean, he was literally begging Chris to come back. And he said, he said to me in confidence, you know, in private, yo, Chris was the only guy I would ever let talk to my biggest customer. Wow. And when I say biggest customer, it was more than 40% of coherent sales. That's big. Yeah. For, for that product line. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the biggest buyers of lasers in the world. And, um, and, and that's what I've known all along is, you know, he, he, he's a different type of engineer and has done different types of engineering in that he truly does. Hey, you know, when, when we were talking about our new Versalase product, um, the Stratus Versalase combined system, he was like, well, let's call up, you know, this guy from, from this company and talk to him and see, you know, what is it, what is it he actually wants? Mm -hmm. And so the whole development of that product was through, you know, Reese and, other people and hey I needed this and you, you have it but it doesn't really work the way we wanted to can you make it this way yeah. and integrating those little nuances make you from something that they take and plug in and, and it works to they take and then you know oh well we got to tweak this a little bit and it's got to go you know and okay but when this is happening if you want blanking you got to yeah. actually do this and don't and, breathe yeah, on it wrong yeah exactly right? yeah yeah so okay so today you've got so it's you, Chris, and you're running the show. So you've got your own business, mm -hmm. and you guys are making uh, both single laser modules, right? So, and you've got a laser module here that you brought. Um, and so this is this is a small cube, is what I'm looking at. Right. Um, it's got a nice SMB connector, and it looks like a multi-pin D sub in the back, and mm -hmm. a little USB action with some LEDs. Okay, and so. This is your key product. This looks like you've got a Stratus uh, 642. Mm -hmm. And so how many laser, like, okay, so this is one uh, version of a single line laser cube, mm -hmm. right? We could, or laser box, right? right? How many of these boxes do you guys sell? Like in terms of how many different lines do you offer? Um, you know, I, 
like I don't even know that exact number, but all wavelengths and powers, you know, up to about a half watt. So oh, wow, okay, so you can th- do like a 500 milliwatt output laser. Yeah, from okay. 375 to, um, we've done some IRs, we're looking at 980 and 1064 and some longer IR wavelengths, mm-hmm. um, 808, 850, but you know, pretty much through the spectrum. And so really what this is, is a package to carry basically any, any available laser diode. Cool. So you have, you have your own like kind of highly stabilized or, or optimized uh, uh, chassis and you can drop in whatever engine you want. Yeah. So the entire thing, um, you know, basically will take this same platform, will take all of those lasers and all those powers. Right on. Okay. So we use the same components. The only difference is optics and coatings. So, um, and that's just based on whatever laser you're using. Yeah. So, um, and that, you know, goes back to, you know, again, Chris is, I learned it in college is commonality of parts. So everything's the same, you know, there's some different technologies because we do do a 532 DPSS. So some of the mechanics and optics are the same, but wherever we can keep them, we have the same driver board, same um, control boards and things like that. So from the outside world, it basically looks the same. There's some different performance because DPSS doesn't modulate well. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, yeah that makes sense because it's got a pump. Right. right. Yeah. Ironically, we found out from the supplier of that source that we're one of the only ones that can modulate it up to about 20 kilohertz directly. Which is more than fast enough for most work, at least in the research industry. Right. Yeah. Right. But most other people can't. Huh. Um, same with our 561 technology. Um, you know, it's a fa- it's incredibly complex but simple um, device that is the source. Um, and most companies couldn't modulate it. They could mm-hmm. modulate it, but they couldn't turn it completely off. Um, so there were a lot of nuances that Jerry, our guy that has done electronics starting with dye lasers all the way out <laughs> to, I mean, at Coherent, he did basically the electronics for every type of laser ever made so you've got an analog guru yeah yeah which is those are these days that's a unicorn right yeah i mean they're they're especially for um you know the way he can approach and solve just really complex problems in an analog world yeah because everyone tries to go to digital Mm -hmm. and but you've got to drive all these things analogly so Back to the fact they're gigahertz response devices. Um, Plus know, analog. That, right. that, that's a very specific domain of engineering. Right. Yeah. So, um, and that's that's sort of the other side of what, what we have that's very unique is we're, we're small as far as full-time and fully employed employees, but because of both Chris and my um, longevity in the industry, we know enough contractor, consultants, engineers that we can basically get whatever resource we need to solve whatever problem we have to. So. Yeah, I'm feeling like that's becoming the norm now, especially post-COVID or midst COVID. Who knows where we're at right now? I guess we'll find out. But uh, it seems like the um, structure of many companies is going to this combination of core core people who are retained full-time, and then you have these levers you can turn when necessary to amplify your power right and so when you need to go a certain direction you can you know you have that person with that close working relationship everything's established and it really gives you the ability to be um you know you're, you're not held down in a way by having this burn rate 
right? right. At, at a company costing revenue. Yeah. yeah, right, which then forces you to put out more product and maybe you know, you, you're making um, product decisions that you wouldn't want to make or, you know, so having the lower burn rate gives you more flexibility, right? But um, I also think, I think COVID accelerated. I think it was heading in that direction anyway. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. You know, I think COVID really, um, just just like the recession, you know, in the in the late, two, you know, 2007-ish, and then the telecom bust and the, and the dot-com bust, I think those sorts of events, um, you know, they're devastating financially to a lot of people and everything else. But I think they also, what they do is trim the fat. Yeah. Because the dot-com was the classic one. Is Oh, yeah. I mean, there were so many companies out there that had zero value that were in, you know, the hundreds of millions. And the people that bought those stories lost their shirts. Because I still have a MySpace account. I'm just kidding. I knew some of the founders of Webvan. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's crazy. They raised billions of dollars and had zero revenue. Well, I think it's funny how, especially coming kind of from the, um, you know, early, early age for me, uh, a military background and then before that wrestling background is one of the more interesting aspects of um, those type of close-knit, highly competitive teams is that um, you are very pressured to put, to pull your weight. Yeah. Right? And... What's so fascinating is people go, oh, you know, you're this big, mean, like, uh, 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 you know, well, you're just greedy. You want to fire, you know, the person that wants to show up late and then take their money, right, and right. keep it for yourself. And you go, well, okay, let's project that over a long timeline, right? Like, what happens? Okay, so let's say we have 10 people and three of them decide they're going to slack off, right? Well, ultimately, those three can easily sink the company. Right. And so then that means that the other seven get screwed. Right. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that long term uh, uh, trajectory. Whereas when, you know, you 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 say to yourself the truth, which is every day is a day of survival. Right. Like mm-hmm. like being especially small businesses, we're out on our own. Um, and it's one of the great animating contests of freedom and, and challenge that I enjoy right. about what we do. Right. right. I would not play nice inside of a large corporate structure mainly because I'm an annoying pain in the ass, but, but also because I'd be bored, right? And that would then leverage me to be an annoying pain in the ass, right? And so I, I kind of just, for whatever reason, is it upbringing, is it genetic uh, 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 switches or whatnot, but I enjoy the fear of starving to death, right? And, and that opportunity then drives this passion, right? It's like the opportunity to know that you're gonna be hungry so you gotta figure it out, right? You gotta do something. It's a big motivation, right? Yeah, you gotta work hard, right? And it's something about that for me. Like when I got a salary, uh, when, you know, I've worked salary jobs, I've worked commission jobs, I've worked. Now it's straight up like either survive or die job, right? Like that's the the, the beauty of the owning your own business, right? right. You have the, you have <laughs> yeah. the opportunity to starve a lot yourself. Of risk on the line, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you do some do enough things dumb back to back, and you're gonna end up broke. And and in a way, that's great, right? Because it, it reminds me of like. Um, Kind of, kind of like the single, single captain or single uh, uh, operator sailboats, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, hey, maybe a storm will take you out, right? But so you better watch the weather, right? And right. but you're you have the autonomy to go where you want to go, uh, but you got a lot of work to do, and you can sink that boat if you want, right? Right. Um, and so, I think that looking at that, then you say, hey, yeah, you're saying trim the fat. It's like. Yes, and that's necessary, and it's important, right? It's important that a company is 
um, long, longevity-wise profitable for the real stakeholders, which again are the people that work there, right? So when people say, oh, trimming the fat, you know, it's like they see that as being mean to the guy that right. maybe doesn't work as hard. No, it's actually way more mean to all the people that maybe they work hard most days and some days we all have a bad day, right? right? But if you don't trim that fat, then everybody gets trimmed. Right. And, and I think so many people don't understand. It's not a bubble. It's not like this company exists against no one else. No, right? and I, I think I think you nail why, again, our investor is a good friend and, and why I really wanted him involved in this is that, you know, he's been in business for quite a long time and managing his his um, company. And he has a he has that same philosophy. I mean, he he is a capitalist like you and I are. Um, but it, what he he coined the term, and I hadn't heard it before, and I've heard it a lot more. Is he's more about social capitalism, and the idea that so if you are have do have an employee that is underperforming or not doing, you you do your best as a manager because it's just like a teacher. If a te- if you're teaching a class and the and one kid isn't getting it, there might be something with how you're teaching it, or there could be actually something like. You know, the kid needs glasses or something like that. Yeah. And if you fix that problem, you end up with someone that is a highly valuable member of your team. Totally. And and that's what I really liked about our partner is is he's had to deal with that. And especially being in the UK where you can't just trim the fat. You have to, you know, there's processes and because, you know, they're a more socialistic company, country. And so they have all these rules about when you hire people and they've been there for so long, how you get rid of them and, and, and the ways you can do it. Whereas, it, you know, we have the other extreme is it's basically corporate piratism is yeah. basically if I decide you don't want to work, I don't want you there. I'm just going to get rid of you regardless yeah. of whether or not, you know, you're a productive member of the team or have any protections or how long you've been there. Yeah. Or maybe you're uh, 65 and have a really high salary right. and I don't want to pay your full retirement and, benefits. And, so I'll just having, having been We've a, seen pers- that, right? a person in a previous company that literally was forced out because of ethics and morals and other things and unethical behavior of management who they subsequently were fired by the board and other upper management where I allu- I basically gave them the key to what was really going on, falsifying data and other things. Um, you know, there's, there's two ways that sword can cut, right? Sure. But back to what I really like about our partner is we both have the same philosophy is, you know, because he has gotten rid of people in his mm-hmm. company. And the fact of the matter is, though, before he did that, he he did everything possible to turn them to make them a, a valuable person on their team because, you know, one of the first things he does is in when finding new employees, they vet them incredibly well. I mean, the interviewing process for them is 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 quite arduous. So mm-hmm. once you're in, they've invested a lot of time and money in getting you in there, and so there's a lot of effort in steering them in the right direction because so you're in sales and you're not making your sales calls or you're not contacting people. Oh wait, well maybe you're better at inside sales or better at sales support or something else because you're not as uh, comfortable throwing yourself out there, Mm -hmm. you know, in sales calls and things like that. Um, And, and that's sort of the idea of any, anything is you have, you have to learn where, is the effort really worth it to continue to support this and make it viable or do you cut bait and, and do something else? Right. Yeah. I think what's so fascinating about that is that having worked with just, I mean, in so many different, uh, uh, industries and in so many different, uh, 
you know, with so many different people. I think what's been interesting to me is that there's really one, one sole determiner uh, or, or deterministic out, output of whether a person, whether you should continue working with them or not. Right. And that's whether they are willing to try. Yeah. And, and that's that, really it. Right. Like, and a lot of people, I know that younger people, um, you know, even my kids, you know, they have no idea what they're going to do for work. Right. Or a lot of the young uh, folks that I, I deal with um, or talk to at uh, my gym, right, my uh, martial arts gym, um, they don't know where they're going. Right. right. Some of them are in college. Some of them are uh, uh, studying in fields that they know long term they probably won't leverage. But they're, they're going because they don't know what else to do. Right. right? Or even my uh, employees, the younger employees, they don't know ultimately where they're going to end up. Well, it, it's like – and then they'll say – well, you know, maybe I should go this direction. Maybe I should go that direction. And it's kind of funny. I think your story, your background is exactly um, kind of in a way the the reflection of the advice I try to give. Because like who the hell am I to give advice? Right. I'm just some random dude that obviously doesn't fit well inside of a large corporation. Right. That's all we've qualified so far, right? And and so, you know, how, who, how am I qualified to give any advice? And but I think the one piece of advice that I can give is that whatever you do, be willing to work your ass off. Right. That's it. No, that is the only requirement. Right. And I, I don't think that I, – I, I just can't even imagine, oh, you know, you don't have that native, let's say, uh, IQ. Right? Let's say that you don't have that IQ. I don't know a ethical business owner who will not find a place for you right. if you are hardworking and honest. Right. That, like that's, that's it. That's right. the requirement. And so many people think it's so much more complicated and you have to magically path this this career chart or something. I had no idea what I was going to do, you know, when I was 18 and then 22 and 24 and 30. And I don't even know what I'm doing now, you know? I mean, but I do know this. Whatever I do, I'm not going to bullshit myself. I'm not going to bullshit other people. I'm going to work my ass off. Right. Right. I can guarantee you that. Right. I might fail and I might suck at what I do. But those three things will happen, right? Right. And and that is all I can guarantee of myself and to other people. Um, but it's funny because that it shouldn't be that simple. But it is. But it is. Well, and it's just like so. My son just started high school, and we were talking on the way, and he, you know, he he's an incredibly motivated and and focused kid for being fourteen because he's already like. He's like, I got to go talk to my counselor because I got to make sure I'm going to be on the right track for getting my senior classes. In. Uh, yeah. I mean, what freshman in his second week of school is talking that way? It wasn't me. I, I wasn't. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. And that definitely wasn't me when I was in high school. Um, and it, it, but it goes along with, with um, the advice I've given him is it doesn't really matter what you do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. And, and what it matters that you choose a path and start down it because mm -hmm. it, guess what? It probably will be wrong. Yeah, that's and, right. And and the whole point is, is if you've chosen it and it's your path, you're not letting life steer you, you will figure out, oh, well, I need to make a left turn here, mm -hmm. right? And and I think a lot of people end up allowing life to steer them. Mm -hmm. And when the choice is in front of them, like they hate their job, they hate their wife, they hate their family, they hate they themselves, hate, they hate right? themselves <laughs> and they don't choose, choose the path to fix that. Mm -hmm. And ironically, like taking, taking the wife, most likely it's because they don't like themselves, so they can't like anybody else. And yeah. if they worked on that, they probably would actually, cause they married her in the first place. 
Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. something's changed, and it's most likely not them. Right. Yeah. It's not the spouse. Not always, it's probably, right? Yeah. Like nine times out of ten, it's because it's like, how do I expect someone to respect or care for me if I don't respect or care for myself? Correct. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the path that led me to Vortran originally um, was, was sort of littered with a whole lot of... Um, I would call it misinformation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but in the end, it, it worked out the way it was supposed to. And, yeah. you know, whether you, you you throw, you know, that faith in God or whatever, the reality is, is that it's in every aspect of every society because isn't it the Chinese proverb, the longest journey starts with the first step, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and that's the whole point is, is if you don't take that first step, especially with something that seems really scary and risky and all these other things, you know, and you take the safe path always, well, you know, McDonald's is a really safe job. Yeah. So you is know, prison. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want the ultimate form of safety. And it links because you prison, mentioned right? my climbing. I mean, that, that's that mantra for me because I've done some really hard, crazy stuff. And, you know, I want to like the first time I went to go on my own as a field salesperson, one of my first presentations was at Kodak in Rochester, New York. And I met with 30 guys and these guys, I mean, they were all fellows and, you know, I mean, these guys knew that collective room probably had half of the world's knowledge in optics. Wow. And in, in, in this is this this is the irony of life is I talked to them talked to them about what I know and they'd ask me questions I'm like I don't know the answer to that you know but I'll find I take you know this is back when we were doing foils for for presentations on an overhead projector yes I mean yes. give me the next slide yeah <laughs> right and so you know I talked about all these things and by that time I had no I knew quite a bit but they were working on you know this is back this is before digital cameras really. Mm -hmm. And so they were working on digital imaging and all this stuff and they wanted to do all they, the biggest thing they were working on that we were working on them with was x-ray scanning at the time. Oh yeah. Back which when is, you had, yeah, yeah. Which is really that. hard. You're, yeah. It's a transparent surface. You're looking at shades of gray mm -hmm. and how do you image that and scan it with yep. a red laser? And so they had all these questions about polarization stability and all these things. And I was like, I don't know, you know, um, but back to the choice, the choice was I could be that sales guy. It's like, I don't know. And I'm not going to find out, you know, you figure it out. Well, instead I wrote down every single one of their questions and went back to Jim Snyder. I'm like, Hey, here's the list of questions. And he wrote, he wrote all these really complicated answers. I made sure I understood them and I called him back and said, here's what I found out. And they're like, Oh, okay. And guess what? We got a contract and made yeah. a bunch of money. And, yeah. um, but the, the other thing was, and this is the weird thing about life because one of the guys that was in that meeting ended up being a guy that helped at Pavilion, this guy, Badri Naranyan, and he was a research fellow and helped develop the first x-ray scanning machines and everything else. And I was wow. like, oh, and I said, it and he goes, you know, I think I was in that meeting. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, we live in a small world, man. Like, it's so funny. Optics and imaging and all, it yeah. is such a small community, right? Um, but that's, it's that weird thing about life is that the choices I've made were motivated by a whole lot of other things. But what I knew was they were the right choices for me at the time with mm -hmm. what I knew. Yeah. 
and and it 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 got me to a place where you know things are pretty good yeah right which is awesome right but like you said you know we're a small company and there's a lot different stress and you know things you think about when you don't have other people to push the plane to right oh yeah oh yeah it's hard that that kind of um knowing and it's difficult too to know that like on one hand it, it is uh, as a, as the leader it's on your shoulders but then there's a there's a proverb that says uh the horse is made ready for the day of battle but victory belongs to the lord and i think to me it, it's an interesting proverb because it's saying two things that are very important right one is that you have an obligation to prepare for whatever endeavor you're going to undertake right you, so you can't you know go climbing and not have the appropriate clothing and not have the appropriate right. gear and then go, oh, there's a storm, you know, and like, right. oh, God forbid. This is you know, so like, hard. Why am I doing this? Yeah, right? yeah, like, oh, there's a storm and it screwed me over. Well, hmm, you didn't look at the weather and right. you didn't prepare for your gear. And so you do have this um, obligation to turn on your brain and use it, you know. But then on the other hand, bad crap can happen. Right. And that's the, you know, you can, hey, you can get in a boxing match and, and uh, be the, the best striker in the world. And the guy can catch you on the button, right? right? Striker's chance, and or he just is better, or he's better on that day, and you didn't have enough coffee or whatever it is, right? And so a chance can occur, but chance can occur whether or not we prepare and and due diligence. And so then the only option we have is to due diligence, right? right? And so that I think, I think, um, but if, I I yeah. think you're heading to a place that the probably most important lesson I've learned, especially now. Um, you're running this is that um is how you treat failure yeah, absolutely and i think yeah. a lot of people especially today they expect themselves and everything around them to be perfect and when things are wrong or they screw up or they fail they basically you know throw their toys around and everything's done and you know blah 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 and what i've noticed of the most successful people i know and that's not necessarily you know like my best friend you know, I was told by um, very influential people in my life as a, at a young age that the only way to be successful is, you know, to be an engineer and run a business and be blah, 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 and all these things. And it turns out my best friend was a, work, was a telephone worker, climbed telephone poles forever. He's my climbing partner, um, firefighter and everything else, and he's retired at 56 living in Cosmo. And raking in the yeah, retirement and, and, plan, and, and he's yeah. financially set. He's happy. He's he's, but he's lived a life that to that was presented to me as basically failure. And you know what I've learned throughout my years is that you know, it's far more important to be happy. Now you don't want to be a homeless person happy, sure. <laughs> but. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different ways to get to that end result. And mm-hmm. that and, and the commonality is, and this is why he's my climbing partner, I've never known anybody that would work as hard and as consistently as he would. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to see that, right? And and to see that it it I don't know, one of my friends, uh, close friends is a uh, UPS driver. And you think, "Oh man, you know, like when you when you're younger, you know, and they think, oh, I couldn't do UPS driving for 20 years or whatever. Well, I've been in working in this field for more than 20 years now, right? Or about 20 years. And you start go, to go, well, wait a minute. My buddy's going to retire pretty soon with a fat pension, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and I got to make sure I make sales next quarter. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to survive over here. And meanwhile, you know, yeah. he got to stay in shape. 
because guess what you do as a UPS driver? You're getting up, you're moving heavy stuff. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, I'm always fighting the neck and the back and this and that. And why? Because I'm cramped into a chair, stuck in a room. Yeah. And it's so funny because you go, who's the idiot here? You know, it's like, right. And, but, but our, especially I think, um, kind of like the larger culture, our, our larger culture. And this actually falls from a, I read an interesting treatise on this. It falls actually from the Greeks because when the early um, philosophers kind of um, came to their position, right, the idea of manual labor was anathema to a thinker. Right. Right. So if you, if you had the IQ uh, to, or the proclivity to sit and just think about thinking, why then anything other than doing that was a disservice. Right. And so that creates a class separation which we've carried all the way into our culture, at least in the United States, of, hey, you're either a high-end intellectual, you know, white-collar worker, if you will, and therefore the blue collar is not as good, if you will, right? Um, and we teach that to our kids. And what's even more funny is I have a neighbor who owns a sanitation business, started off like renting porta-potties to mm -hmm. businesses and stuff like that, right, to construction companies. He just built a house that best guess two million bucks mm -hmm. right he's crushing it is that the white house the white house right yeah yeah everybody knows it is the white house up the road from me and you go well well wait a minute that's a blue collar not only is it a blue collar job but it's a job where you're dealing literally in excrement right right it's the worst job for a lot of people that they could imagine and yet this guy uh amazing guy i'd love to have him on and talk to him because uh amazing business leader a mentor for me a mentor mm -hmm. um just a, a really strong man of faith um, and, and the most humble guy, right? But works his butt off. And, uh, you know, you go, is this the definition of success? I'd argue that in every way, this guy, through his journey, has achieved success. Mm -hmm. And he did it in a way that everything in, in when we were younger would say was the wrong way to do it. Right. Go deal in poop. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so it's, it's just really funny that... The, the way life works out in that sense. And I think I think it's important for us being in the position that we're in, right, to help people that may not have that opportunity to see um, that all these options are there, right? right? It's not whether or not you're some amazing engineer, right? Because there's a lot of people that have engineering degrees that suck at engineering, right? It's not, it's not as much about that. Of course, there are many jobs where you need to pull a lever. You weren't gonna start cutting on people as a doctor without a medical degree right right and so sure if if that's the path for you then go do it and work your ass off right, right? Yeah. well you know along those lines is just like climbing <clears throat> i mean i uh, my goal was to do some very big mountains and but the first time we ran out we didn't go try try to climb the hardest biggest thing although we did go try to climb shasta and got lost and you know <laughs> <Shasta's no laughs> joke came either. in and we were really prepared but we knew what we were doing to a point and and from that part you know educated ourselves more and more each time to where you know the culmination was my my buddy and i bought tickets to peru no guides no nothing and just went down there and did three peaks you know went to almost twenty thousand feet that's crazy climbed 70 degree ice for <sighs> I mean, it was 1,800 feet of 70-degree ice. No oxygen? I, no oxygen. Oh, my gosh. You don't need oxygen until 24,000, really. You won't die. Yeah, yeah, you won't die, but the FAA wants you on oxygen yeah. above 11,000. Well, it, it, interesting thing, because you acclimatize. So yeah. it, took us, it took us one, two, three, four, five, five days, six days to get to 17,000 feet. Okay, so it wasn't like 
You, know, you don't go An straight up there, you now. die. Yeah. Which actually going to the first peak, we went into this um, call where there's fair, three fairly famous peaks in, in the Andes. And um, you, know, you start the parking lot where you get dropped off is 11,000 feet. And the base camp's 15,000 feet. And so you hike in, you know, three and a half, four thousand feet in the first day. And so when you get there, I mean, literally, we walked into camp and my friend, he takes a really long time to acclimatize. His lips were literally blue, like your blue jeans. Yeah. And I was like, dude, you need to sit down. Yeah. And me, I acclimatized really quickly. And and I was feeling strong. And the funniest thing is like, I'll set up camp. You start and, moving and then, nope, go and down. I yeah. went to literally take the tent out of the bag and sat down and fell asleep too. And we Ugh. slept there just on these rocks in the open for like two hours. I woke up and the sun was going down. I was like, oh my God. You know, but we knew enough by that time. And literally when we were coming in, there was a guy tied to a donkey being taken out. And he was dying. I mean, yeah. he was pale throwing up had no idea where he was um and and both myself and my friend he he was was he ski patrolling at that time he was so he was an emt and um but i had known advanced first aid or everything and we assessed the guy and he's like yeah he's gonna die he needs to go down yeah um but again it's that path of 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 the journey to end up to where we were there by ourselves. We didn't have guides. We didn't have anything. We were just doing it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's the same thing with all stuff along the way. The best part was, is we had great mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I ended up climbing with this guy who was a legend and knew, I mean, it was just the amount of information and he would just, again, cause I had interest and I respected him. He just would flow information to me about how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people, um, especially, you know, not, not to bash on the millennials or the young people, but they kind of believe because they can look it up, they can do it all on their own. And that's the other thing I've taught my kids is that, you know, you can't, there isn't, there's very few things you can do completely solo somewhere along the way. You need to have somebody that knows more than you either through books or through classes or through just mentors, meeting people and being involved in a network to get the knowledge to, to, to excel at whatever you're doing. Sure. Well, that's like saying, I mean, it's always funny to me when you look at a manual and it says, you know, inspect and replace if worn. Okay. Right. We'll define worn. Yeah, exactly. Well, Does that mean that, broken? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and, and when is worn, when is it worn and about to fail versus light spalling? Right. You know, and, that right there, the answer to that question is a lifetime, you know. Right. And it's so fascinating because we don't have an appreciation as much, I think, culturally, uh, of, of that kind of knowledge, and we really should, you know, right. because you only get that knowledge, you know, uh, uh, by doing something for a long period of time. I had my my well go out of my house this week, and so you know, Sunday the 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 water just stops, right? And this is like my worst fear manifest because. That was the only subsystem on my house that I really didn't feel comfortable messing with. Um, and it was, it was interesting because a lot of my friends were saying, oh, you're the guy that can work on anything. Why don't you just go fix it, you know? And uh, I was like, but I don't know how to fix it. You know, right. it's the one thing yeah. I don't know how to fix it is why I was so scared. I don't want to make it worse either. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, I'm gonna push the wrong thing and like- uh, Collapse you know, the well. Exactly. Need a, need a right? drill to come out and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like whatever it is, I'm sure I'll, you know, is the one area I didn't feel comfortable. Well, so, you know, um, 
got a guy out there. He comes out, and it's this 74-year-old dude that runs this business, you know, and, and just watching him work. And I'm, I'm working alongside him, you know. And uh, uh, we, we I remember at one point he just grabs the top of the well after disconnecting, you know, the wiring and the, and the, the tube, and he just goes, okay, start pulling. And so we, like, pulled this thing out of the ground. and But I'm watching him work, and it's that whole idea of, like, he can just look at it, and he knows what's wrong. Right. right. He can he can four minutes, you know, diagnose this, that and the other thing. And OK, this is exactly what's wrong. You know, he's seen 500 of them or a thousand of them, you know, and uh, in this exact state. And there is no question. Right. And that type of knowledge is just so precious. And yet we don't you know, you're not going to find that on a YouTube video, you know, even though this might be on a YouTube video. And so it, it's, it's interesting because it's a mix. Right. And on the other hand, there's stuff there's all sorts of stuff I've figured out by watching YouTube videos, right? So I'm not discounting that, but it's both are important, both are necessary, and we don't want to lose one while grabbing onto the other, you know. Well, I think in this day and age, it's really important to know the source that you're getting that information from. Oh yeah, because there's, you know, I've yeah. seen a lot of YouTube videos that are just wrong, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now you're gonna take yeah. your, uh, you know, your crescent wrench and hit the thing, and yeah. you're like, I don't think that's the way they designed it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a good point. You always have to, to ask, you know, where the where the information's coming from. So well, interesting. So tell me a little bit about where you see Vortran going. What are your you've got your single uh, laser box and then you guys also have like a multi laser combiner, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. Well basic I mean, it, real simply it's just multiple lasers combined. Um, um, into a single output, it can be free spacer or fiber. But when you really talk about what what our next steps is and what we're really doing, um, a lot of what our value and what we see next is is not one of these products, because what we've really done is develop a platform technology, and a lot of the things behind the scenes that we're working on are more integrating that technology into a higher level subsystem for specific applications. So it's taking, you know, this fairly mature, quite mature technology and either scaling it up, which is the multi multiple lasers and specific specifications and, and, application of those multiple lasers and then also scaling it down and taking away some performance and some other things and taking advantage of the other high performance things for um you know lower cost isn't the right description more a better economical solution for oem systems yeah and so you know I even just thought of this right now, but it's popped in my head several times. You know, Coherent tried to do this years ago um, in their medical group and these other things where they were taking existing technology and building these custom systems for specific companies and applications and things like that. And it never really took off. And I think a lot of the problem was is they they were back to using a hammer to to, to kill a mosquito. Mm-hmm. Is they were over applying a lot of engineering and everything else and resources. So you know something that should cost ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars to develop, they're charging a million. You know they're getting a lot of money and a value out of it, but it it excludes all the small companies and small players that could take advantage of that. Um, but don't have the financial resources or backing to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what what we've approached this with is, you know, 
even some big companies because to get say something like a new flow cytometer out the door you know a company like bd it's a million to ten million dollars to get the first prototype built and 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 get it qualified and everything else Mm -hmm. and so when you're talking about the direction that market is going of low cost low cost per test systems that excludes them from even being able to approach it because they can't get through the engineering to even develop the product yeah um and so as always what it what is it doing it's 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 being the genesis for new markets because smaller companies can get it done where they take on more of the risk and everything else and get the payout at the other end once they've developed the market and developed the basically the customer base which the customer base is there it's what all testing labs and hospitals and doctors offices want is i want a system on my desk that cost me 20 to 50,000 dollars and then cost my you know my my patients 50 to 100 dollars per test yep absolutely right yeah. cuz no one wants to go in and spend 1500 dollars to find out whether or not they have hepatitis mm-hmm. But the only way you can do that right now is you go to your doctor, you give him a blood sample, he sends it to Quest or the yep. local hospital or whatever else. And so as Lab the chain board, goes right? up, yeah. they everyone's got their hand in the money, which they should because it's a business. Yeah. But it's making you, the end user, pay more for something that the doctor should be able to do in his office, plug the plug the the sample in, talk to you for a few minutes and go, okay, let's, let's look at the results. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's sort of Jetson stuff. That's what's always been talked about is taking all these high technology solutions and putting them into the home or very accessible to the end user. And, um, you know, we we continue just by the nature of the way society works is those those technologies grow up into big companies which have more hands in it so the costs go up even though the value and the capability hasn't increased at the same price of the cost so it develops this again new market yep yep that's the old uh what is it uh, disruptive product innovation right correct and so that's where we come in is these guys that have these ideas is we give them a low-cost partner that in the end can manufacture what they need so we can do both the engineering and manufacturing and get them to market quicker and cheaper yeah well it sounds to you like you know it's one thing if i said hey take the expensive stuff out of this module right here and uh give me a you know let's just say in quotes the cheapest possible iteration of that well if i asked five different companies to do that there are, I know there are several companies that would say okay and do it knowing that the end result would not be what I needed. Right. And I think there's a huge difference in saying, well, look, if you pull out XYZ performance aspect, the result will be this and then you'll hate me and I don't want to do that. So here's where we can do it right. Here's where maybe a little engineering will have to happen uh, to get you at the price point that you need but with the quality in the right areas that you need. And that kind of can only happen in a company that is agile enough to pull that off, right? You're, the larger the organization is, the more difficult right. it's going to be to invest in a specific engineering effort to make that happen. Yeah, and I think there's that, you, that's the advantage of being small, fast, and light, right? You, you could go out, walk out of this um, room and go call Coherent and say, I have this great idea and mm-hmm. I'm willing to pay you this much. Will you do it? No way. Right. Yeah. And, th- and that's, 
which that answer is most companies because even the ones that say they can do it, you're absolutely right. They'll try it and then it never works. So they end up just spending one or the other is spending the money to make it happen. Well, and that's why it doesn't matter who it is, right? It, what, what matters really is that resource process and value network and the inherent right. mass of the organization, right? I mean, you could take any large company that's mature, right? And say, well, hey, go change course. And it's literally a byproduct of the size that will, the answer will have to be no. Right. Because you cannot be that big and also be dynamic. HP did something interesting earlier um, in the, like the late 80s or maybe early 90s, but they took their laser jet division. Maybe it was the inkjet division. I don't remember which. But now they use inkjet. And they had the laser jet. And they were crushing with the laser jet. And uh, the inkjet guys came along and said, hey, we can do this with like these curing diodes or whatever. So um, the management said, great. So they spun off a small division independently and let those engineers go and do that. And they developed the product, sold the product in the market, grew the company, and then got so big that they acquired the laser jet division. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because you can architect a large corporation, but it really ends up having to be a series of small corporations inside the larger corporation for that to work. And so many people don't do that. You know, but that the, 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 the modern manifest of that is Cisco, right? Sure. Because Cisco, they've sort of changed over the last... 10, 15 years, but when they were really growing fast, is they did exactly that, is rather than Cisco going in and being the corporate ogre and taking over all these little, you know, Linksys and all these other little companies that were building switches and other things, they would basically just buy them and turn them into a business unit. Mm -hmm. So they operated completely independently of everything else so they could still innovate, they could still attract the talent, which was the other thing, because there are the most talented people, the last place they want to be is in a large company. Sure. Because yeah. you, you will be stifled, which is exactly why I left HP is I went into this division. I had, I was doing a, a security software for Unix systems. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the classic thing is I was an engineer and I went to the interview and I could answer all the questions. So they hired me. Yeah. Go and, sit in your corporate drone position in the cubicle and, and program. My God. I mean, they were literally doing things. I mean, Texas Instruments, their computer division had been out of business for I don't know how many, a decade or more. And they were still like generating these, these, these security measures for it by using three different programs. And one was in basic. Come on, basic's the best, man. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, why didn't you just combine it all and do this? And yeah. they were like, what? That's not in the policy manual. Right. Yeah. So I did. And the irony was when I was leaving, they were like, oh, well, we need that. And I'm like, no, you didn't pay me for that. Yeah. Do it on that the side, right? Tool. That was my yeah. tool. You want, if you want to pay me 10 grand, I'll give you the, I'll give you the code. But that was my code. I oh, did that so on my funny. own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't. So I was like, okay. And that's, and that's how big companies are is they own everything without allowing you to innovate and not get, and not giving you the tools to innovate. And it doesn't have to be that way. That's what's right. so funny, right? I mean, there are these rare exceptions where organizations see it from the top and they understand that like, hey, you know, you're always going to have these small groups of crazy people that are willing to try different things. So empower them and unleash them and support them, right? right? But instead it becomes you're not playing by the large corporate policy manual, thus we we must stifle you appropriately. <laughs> and it's so funny cuz it just it, it everything leans that direction, right? And right. In, in a good way, in a self-preserving way, right? 
because the larger you are, the more structure you need. Otherwise, you will fall over. You can't have chaos all over the place. Well, and right? I think the major difference between the small companies and the large companies is the, is the risk aversion. Yeah. So you become this exactly what you said as a corporate drone because everyone's afraid of taking any risk because if you screw up and fail you're, you're gonna done. get fired you're sacked yeah yeah or you're gonna be blamed forever and put into some division where you're managing janitors right yep. um and so that that is kind of the corporate genesis of today is large companies and and the irony is is it's even companies like google and Tesla and everything else is the bigger they've gotten, the less they've been able to innovate because everyone's afraid of getting fired. Sure. Well, not only getting fired, but now, I mean, that's one of the other interesting things about having a small business is you start to understand the chains that come with a salary, right? Because right? it's not just a salary. I have one friend who I, I enjoy his commentary, but he calls it being a wage slave. Yeah. And that's you cool. don't, it's so funny because that's offensive to like, if I'm earning a salary, you know, I'm like, screw you, buddy. Call me a slave. Who the hell, you know? But then you think about, okay, so what happens? Let's say I don't get fired. Let's say I decide to quit. How does my life change? Do I have a corporate car? Do I have a corporate gas card? Do I have a corporate cell phone? Do I have a corporate laptop? Do I have a corporate healthcare? Do I have a corporate 401k? Like, so when you decide to leave a company, you're going to upend your whole life. Right. You're going to lose your doctor. You're going to lose if your kids have, or your wife needs certain medication. Maybe that all gets upended, right? Maybe you have to go buy a car now. And on one hand, companies offer these as perks and benefits because they are. But on the other hand, if you leave that ecosystem, like, it's going to hurt. And so in a way, it's these these uh, gold handcuffs, right? Right. Well, I think the most, like, devious and insidious ways they've done it is these Google campuses and other campuses. Oh, with the food where, and yeah, the laundry. Have, they have you know? free food all the time and a gym and all this kind of stuff. And everyone's like, oh, it's so great. And it's like, no, they want you to be there 24-7. And sure. what happens is the culture, it, it it's never written in a handbook. It's never talked about. But you talk about people that break free from those companies. And they're like, I had no idea that basically I was a slave. It's sure. I could not leave and if I wasn't there 50, 60, 70 hours a week, people are asking me, why aren't you getting more done? Yeah, or like, we're, we're, we're here. We're getting our work done. And that goes back to that idea of like, hey, we're all contributing, right? So why aren't you why aren't you pulling your weight? Well, in that case, well, you're all pulling your weight together in a situation which is long-term untenable, right? right. And that goes back to like, what is the purpose of being uh, or, or owning a business, right? Is it, okay, first to keep your family fed, of course, right? Feed yourself, feed your family. But the other side is the opportunity for other people to feed their families by working with you. That That is the best reason to own a business because you can provide people a, a opportunity to live a balanced lifestyle where the culture is set by the management in a way that says, no, go home. In fact, you're not allowed to be here anymore, right? right? Because I know that every ax, every tool, every that my chainsaw, my uh, soldering iron, you know, you name it. What is the one consistent thing about all these tools is that they need overhaul. They need repair. And so if you expect a person to come into an office and work like a dog and not have a repair, you're going to break that tool. Right. That tool will become useless. Right. Well, and study after study, because you you just laid it, walked right into what was going through my head is study after study says is that quality of life means everything of how productive you are yeah and people that live that work in a quality of life 
type of environment end up being far more productive and far more capable than the the drone that wanders around and basically goes in and out of a lab not you know 900 times 900 percent of their life right yeah and you know the, there is differences and there are people you know because i i think of someone like nico <laughs> yeah yeah that you know i'll guarantee he spends an inordinate amount of time in his lab and things like that and there are researchers like that but they're driven by a passion that's beyond a financial goal or oh yeah that has nothing nothing to do with finance right. yeah and and there are people wired that way and mm-hmm. of course they have, i mean chris is one of them mm-hmm. he's here far more than i am and does you know many hours in the office working on product but I, if he was at home he would be in the garage doing that anyway right that's the funny thing right, right? like that's that's a different deal right? right yeah 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 and that's a different wiring most people aren't wired that way but even him you got to get away and you got to reset because then you can clear your mind and start seeing problems from different perspectives and things like that. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people get too focused on, you know, with the blinders on doing what they're doing and they can't, you know, they can't find solutions because they're, they're overworked and over, over incapable of, of, of the free thought to find better solutions. Yeah. No, it's weird. You say that one of my, best pieces of work in the last six months has been when I got COVID, which is insane, right? But I, you know, got a a positive test, right? Started getting the cold and then thinking, well, I thought, oh, I just have allergies. I just have allergies. And then the next day it's worse. I just have allergies. Then I'm like walking up the stairs to my office. I'm like, oh crap. Because I was feeling a little tired. I was like, okay, yeah, this has got to be COVID. So go get the test, right? And they're like, yeah, you're, you're positive. And obviously I told all of my clients like, well, if I'm not dead in two weeks, which they didn't, they didn't enjoy the gallows humor, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had a couple of key clients that I decided, okay, like, and basically it was no joke. You know, this is another one of these small business kind of things you go, well, if I, if I can't get it done, who's going to do it? <laughs> well, not only that, but like, you know, there is a possibility greater than zero that I might end up dead. If so, I better try to get the most profitable work done first and build that crap so that my family has the most money, right? And that's kind of dark, but that's what I decided. And fascinating enough, I didn't have all this other distraction. No one could come over. I couldn't see friends, right? I couldn't even see my family. And so what I could do was get up and work on one project. And it was amazing how much output I got in that done in that one instance, um, simply because I think the chaos level was reduced. Mm. And it's actually helped change a little bit about how I work now. I've dedicated more isolated pieces of time to try to replicate some of that because, you know, it's both awesome to have the opportunity to say, what do I want to work on right now? But it's also chaotic, mm-hmm. right? And and so um, I found it's better to say, okay, I'm going to dedicate this period of time to getting this far on this one project. And that's produced, I think, better output lately. Interesting. So, Yeah. Well, the irony is for sales, I actually like the chaos. And oh yeah, I mean, it, it, I I thrive more when there's a whole bunch of things going on because when there's just one thing to focus on, I find that I can't do it. Yeah, I, I, mean, I can do it to right. an extent, but when I'm drawn in a whole bunch of different directions at the same time, I end up getting more done. Yeah, which is a weird, you know, and. and it goes back to what we were talking about about life is you got to figure out where your strengths are and play to them rather mm-hmm. than and then improve, also work on your weaknesses which is what I I do the same thing I try to block time so I can get my 
busy work done and other things that are tedious and less interesting but have to be done. Put those first, right? So well, I put them last, but I schedule time yeah. for them. See, I do them first so that the dessert is the fun thing, right? Because like my, my, my psychological dessert is enjoying, you know, letting the ADD fly, right? And so then I punish myself early by saying like, oh, look, because it's like, you know, you eat your vegetables first and then have the steak. Uh, see, right? I have dessert first, but I still eat the vegetables. <laughs> so it's, it's the outcome's the same. Oh man, that's so funny. Yeah, because for, for me, that's exactly why I do it is like, oh, I got to get through this crap because the faster... I get this done, right? Like the better I get this done, the faster I get it finished up, well then I can go have fun. And so if that, if I can cram that stuff I don't want to do, like, you know, purchasing or accounting or something mundane, then I get to go have fun, you know, with the, with the coding or the building. Right. And then I, I buy myself more time. And so that's the, that's the benefit. <laughs> so I know that's kind of disturbing, but it's weird. Cause you have to be, you know, who's your boss? Well, it's you. Who's yeah. your employee? Well, it's you. Who, who am I accountable to? Yeah. Yeah, and so you have to kind of put on your boss hat sometimes and be like, you're a lazy piece of crap, you know? Oh, yeah. and you're like, you better work harder, right? And then you take off the boss hat, put on the employee hat and go, I don't want to, I want to go on vacation. You know, it's a schizophrenic position. Which is how I ended up in Cozumel Diary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and that, yeah, you ha but you have to get both. Is, you know, while I was down there, there were days, I mean, it worked out great because ironically, my friend was, was certifying my kids in diving. So, but that was, it was built in babysitting. So my wife and I could get time alone. And then on top of it, when I had to work, I could sit, you know, next to the pool, get all, get all my stuff done and answer all my emails and everything else. So I didn't fall behind, didn't get ahead, but I was on vacation and yeah. uh, you know, the job, the work doesn't stop, especially being a small business owner. You have to get, there are certain things you have to get done every day. Otherwise you can't operate and no one else will do them. Right. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. yeah. So. so it is weird, right? Because it's a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of freedom. Right. You didn't have to ask anybody permission to go. You just go. Yeah. Well, I sort of do, but yeah. someone wasn't probably so happy. But there's always, there's <laughs> yeah. always somebody, somebody somewhere isn't happy, no matter what you do. Right. So, but yeah, right on. Got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That's right, man. Well, Steve, thanks for talking. It's been great. It's uh, I think we've solved all of life's problems. Correct. And learned a little bit about lasers. And uh, We've circled around the world. Absolutely. So thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, downloading some knowledge on the, the laser performance side. I find that fascinating. And uh, thanks for what you do. And thank you for setting this up. And we'll do it again sometime. All right. All right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> nice job. You got to go. Let's see, it's going to say, it's going to say, I'm not recording. Yeah, exactly. You recorded nothing. No, it's still going.